Let's seek the Lord's aid as we come to the Word, continuing in it today. Father, we um, thank you for the songs of the new life, for the rejoicing, for the confidence, for the hope that we have in Christ, crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again. We long for that time when all is done and death is dead. And you are all in all. We know that you are that. But until death is complete, till it is finished and ended, until every knee bows, recognizing who you are, there is much to be done. Lord, as we long as a church then to carry on and to continue to grow in our faith, we pray that it would transform the way that we live, that our doctrine would be solid and true despite what we do not know, but that that doctrine would translate into life, into changed lives that trust you and live for your glory and for the future. And Lord, for those who know not Christ as Savior, there are those among us who have not come to that place of new birth. And I pray that you would open a knowledge of the salvation that's in Christ to their blind eyes to give them hope and life and to find in this message of salvation the joy of their soul for all eternity. We pray to that end. We pray that you continue to move among us and use your word to change and grow us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. The Apostle Peter famously remarked that in the Apostle Paul's letters, I quote, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Well, we have come in our journey through 1 Corinthians to one of those enigmatic passages in Paul's letters. Taken alone, we come to 1 Corinthians 15, 29 to 34. It might sound like Paul has lost his way. He seems to speak in a code that defies description. We have been tracking through verse 28 of chapter 15, and it's clear to all of us the theme is the resurrection of the body, particularly the future resurrection of those who know Christ as Savior. That's the particular emphasis based on the resurrection of Christ. And then we come to this, verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, I say this to your shame. What on earth? (laughs) What is he saying? Where, Where do we go with this? But of course, Paul's words are, nestled in a context, which obviously helps us grasp the meaning of these fairly strange ideas. 
The first Corinthians chapter 15 is Paul's defense of the bodily resurrection. We know that larger context. But notice where this chapter ends. This will help us. Verse 58. Where are we headed in 1 Corinthians 15? Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The doctrine of the bodily resurrection of believers, the end target of that is not to satisfy our curiosity about the future. Does that to some degree, but that's not the point of it. The doctrine of our future bodily resurrection is not intended merely to formulate orthodox belief, although it does that. The doctrine of the future bodily resurrection is intended to transform the way that we live. It's meant to change every day of our lives. Genuine trust in the resurrection of Christ leads to a life that is steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord with an eye that is fixed on eternity. This is the end of it. This is where we're headed with all of this conversation in Paul's view. We also see this agenda as we come more narrowly to the context of this passage. And you saw it there in verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. There's a connection with what he's saying about resurrection and how they were living their lives. And there was much correction that needed to take place. For example, a denial of the bodily resurrection reflected a pagan worldview that the body was of no importance and therefore there was no future for the body after death. Well, what does that translate to? Everything we believe has consequences. And when you take that view of the body, what you have is a church where there were members visiting prostitutes. Chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. What you have is others who are denying conjugal rights to their mates. Chapter 7, verses 2 to 5. And we might think of these things as strange. What's the point? How do they connect? They connect directly to resurrection. The human body has no value, so it did not matter what you did with it. Or... It was best to oppress it, some in the Corinthian church were thinking. All of this needed to be straightened out. This was all skewed and twisted and wrong. It was a wrong view of the body, which was connected to a wrong view of the body's future, which was connected to not understanding the significance that Christ is risen and death will ultimately die. So recalibrating it all to the resurrection... We see where Paul is headed here. Stop sinning. But in verses 12 through 28 then, Paul stresses that only a low view of God fails to see the importance of his ultimate triumph over death in our bodily resurrection. And this is the point as we come, for instance, to verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The Son will hand over the kingdom to the Father, who will be, verse 28, all in all, when death is dead. When is that? When no one's dead. When all are risen. 
to life of separation from God for eternity or to life in his presence with joy and thanksgiving. So Paul gives us then a classic defense of the bodily resurrection of believers and a glorious peak at the end of the age here in these verses preceding. Now, in verses 29 to 34, he supports his thesis with an appeal to reason that ends with this call to godly living. If we integrate it all together within the context, it begins to make sense of these really strange words. And we'll try to do our best to understand them piece by piece. But first, Paul mentions two logical absurdities if there is no bodily resurrection in our future. Two logical absurdities. There are logical absurdities if there is no resurrection of the dead. The first is that baptism for the dead makes no sense. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? There's no bodily resurrection in our future. What's the point of being baptized for the dead? For emphasis, Paul repeats the question, slightly altering it there in verse 29. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And what's the question that comes to your mind? Mine is like, uh, why are they getting baptized for the dead in the first place? What is happening here? I asked Rich to choose all of the songs in our hymnal that had to do with baptism for the dead. He just didn't listen for some reason. I... Know why, but what wonderful songs, weren't they today? Wow. An article in a respected theological journal claims that there are over 200 distinct interpretations of this verse. Another article that is esteemed as a definitive look at the history of the interpretation of this verse cites 40 interpretive categories. So let's get cracking. Number one. No. Not at all. It seems safe to conclude then that nobody today really knows what this means. It's just 200 distinct ideas, 40 separate categories of belief. We don't know. We just don't know what was actually going on there in Corinth. That said, I think we can boil it down by dismissing a lot of very fanciful figurative speech that's given to the text or anachronistic ideas such as they were being baptized for martyrs, which wasn't happening in the early church. These anachronistic things that happened much far, far later. I think we can boil it down to two very decent options. The first being the one that is most often held by Bible believers today. But that first option is that for reasons unknown, some in the Corinthian church were baptized vicariously, that is, in behalf of believers who had died. What's the benefit of this interpretation? It's straightforward. It just takes the words for what they're saying. There are people being baptized in behalf of the dead. There's some problems with it, of course, and that's what spawns many of the other ideas, and that's what? There's no support anywhere of this practice in the New Testament, nor in the early centuries of the church. It also seems strange that Paul, or odd, that Paul would make such a strong case for the resurrection of the body and then stoop for support to a practice that neither he nor the New Testament ever supports. So it's challenging to take the words just straight up. 
But that might be what was going on. Again, I don't think anybody really knows. But number two, a second option, is that Paul exposes the absurdity of baptizing bodies that will not be resurrected. Where we see that phrase, the dead, often that phrase is translated in the Greek context as corpses. can be taken either way for, and as we move to our English idea. Secondly, you see that word mean, what do people mean? The word is actually what do they do? What shall they do? And we can render the sentence per Paul's literary style elsewhere, and I'll just illustrate that briefly here. But in Romans 8, he says, who is, it, who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died. We add those words to get, make sense of it, and it makes clear sense there in Romans 8. We might do the same here in 1 Corinthians 15. What will those do who are baptized? It is for corpses if corpses are not raised. So we might paraphrase then this way. What benefit is gained by those who are baptized if their bodies will never be raised from the dead? Why baptize a corpse? We don't know. What we do know Let me say one more thing there. Negatively, what's the negative of that interpretation? It takes some gymnastics, though sometimes Greek to English requires that. It takes some gymnastics. But also there is that reference to people, to they, literally, third person plural. If Paul had legitimate Christian baptism in view, why would he not say you all or we? I think it could be because he's only referring to those who are baptized who don't believe in the resurrection. So either he's saying something like some of in the Corinthian church may have practiced baptism for the dead, which is absurd if the dead cease to exist. Who are you being baptized for? That's the simple straightest way forward just gives us questions about what was going on. The second option Paul may speak of the absurdity of baptizing bodies that are destined to become nothing more than corpses. Why wash a corpse if there's no future? He's simply saying, and this is what's obvious to us, either way, Paul's point is clear. Baptism for people who have no eternal future is useless. Just to move off of this point for a moment to apply to what's far more of concern to us today... Let us say it here in face of this discussion of baptism that the rite of water baptism never has and never will save anyone by itself. Such thinking is not supported by this verse since large swaths of the New Testament would oppose such an idea that physical water baptism is a means of achieving salvation. Either getting closer to it or securing it. There's no such teaching in the New Testament. This verse cannot make that point. The Mormon church believes that no one may enter the celestial heaven unless they are baptized. And so with the support of this verse, they practice baptism for the dead. If a person wasn't baptized, we can be baptized for them and vicariously they will enter into celestial heaven. But that is a terrible misuse of Scripture to say that any ritual act for the living or the dead could ever add to the salvation that Christ has purchased for his people. 
Nothing can finish the work Christ has finished. Nothing can add to it. And so the question for us, probably not perhaps any Mormons with us here today, but bringing it closer to home, I think it's a good place for us to stop and ask, are you trusting in your baptism to secure your future presence with God in eternity? If you are, abandon that idea. Baptism has an important place in our walk with God. Earning, gaining our salvation through it is not one of them. The answer is in verses 1 through 11 of this chapter, which declare that our salvation is based upon trust in Jesus Christ's death in our place and his resurrection victory over death, sin, Satan, and to give life to his people. This is where our salvation is located, never in a ritual act. It's in Christ alone. And that point is made very clear in this passage. But whatever was meant then for baptism of the dead, it makes no sense if there's no future for uh, no future resurrection. Secondly, another absurdity, if there's no resurrection, is sacrificing for Christ makes no sense. And I think this is the point of verses 30 and following. Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? We probably being Paul and his evangelistic team, every hour a figure of speech, why are we in danger all the time? Paul has in mind the unending physical and mental dangers and mental anguish to which he is exposed in gospel witness. Why do we do that? Verse 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What's the context? The Corinthian church as a whole was not impressed with Paul. His sufferings were a particular stumbling block to them. They were influenced again by their culture. They believed that traveling sophists should be men of great acclaim, of dignity, of rhetorical skill. And what did they see in Paul? He bore in his body the scars of persecution. This is a guy that kept landing in jail. That's not a good sophist. That's not a good traveling philosopher. Paul was a jailbird who was constantly being tortured. But Paul reminds the Corinthians, remember, it's my suffering that brought the gospel to you. Paul took righteous pride in the Corinthians as trophies of God's grace, first of all, but also as trophies of his own suffering for Christ. You are the evidence of the suffering that was necessary to bring the gospel to you. And so I die every day. He's not speaking here of spiritual death, dying to self or the like. In context, he speaks of that fact that he lived at death's door, always vulnerable to martyrdom because this was what it took to spread the gospel. I die every day. In fact, verse 32, what do I gain if, then again he's looking at there's no resurrection of the dead, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Well, now we got wild animals in it. <laughs> he just keeps moving here, doesn't he? Being forced to fight wild beasts was a literal thing in the arenas of Rome. But you did not live to tell about it. 
nor would Paul have been subjected to such torture as a Roman citizen. Fighting wild beasts was also a commonly used figure of speech as that is then what I believe it is here. We can see this, for instance, Ignatius, an early church father who lived uh, in, in the time of Paul. He said, from Syria unto Rome, I fight with wild beasts by land and sea, by night and by day, being bound amidst ten leopards, even a company of soldiers. This last phrase is particularly helpful. I have been bound in my sufferings for Christ amidst ten leopards. Who are the leopards? The leopards are soldiers that had imprisoned him. I think Paul's using this term in that same way, which was common in their setting. He says in 2 Timothy 4, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Again, a figure of speech. We can tie this directly to chapter 16, And verses 8 and 9. Verse 16. He's writing from Ephesus. And in verse 8 he says, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. That's the wild beasts. Are the adversaries that are opposing the gospel, not literal animals. Again, he wouldn't have lived to tell about it as a Christian put in the arena. He also does not mention wild beasts here in 2 Corinthians 11. This is what he's talking about. This is the suffering that he means. This is the dying daily. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This is the beast's. And he faced some of them at Ephesus. So he's saying what? If we have hope in Christ in this life only, if there is no resurrection of the dead, no eternal reward in Christ's presence, all this physical suffering that I've endured is entirely useless. It is a foolish struggle without any ultimate meaning. Continuing verse 32, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He quotes here a common proverb, If life is only about the here and now, we may as well live recklessly and pursue crass materialism and pleasure. Kind of makes sense. Now, Paul speaks hypothetically. I think if you nailed him down, he'd certainly argue that Christian morality is the best way to live no matter the future. Godly living preserves one from all sorts of relational pain, addictions, diseases, heartaches, and loss. But what he's talking about is in the big scheme of things, if we live our 
brief lives with no resurrection to come, the only point is to find whatever passing pleasures we can find and ignore the deep despair of our soul. It is an absolute absurdity to suffer in the way that I do for the gospel if there is no resurrection of the dead. Sacrificing for Christ is meaningless. We might as well just eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It's fascinating, this idea, which was current in the culture of that day, but which is also referenced in the Old Testament. There, God calls his people to obedience and fidelity. We read in Isaiah 22 how they respond. In that day, the Lord of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, so this is what God calls upon Israel to do in response to her sin, but how does she respond? Verse 13, joy, gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That was Israel's godless response. It's interesting here, Paul's saying basically, go for it. If there's no resurrection of the dead, just go for it. Live however you want to live. This life is meaningless and empty. And I, I think it'd be wise for us to really stop here and think carefully. This is the reality of all unbelievers. This is where they truly live their lives. There is no future. There is no hope. They may wish for heaven. They may pray there is something beyond the grave. They may get baptized for the dead and hope somebody's baptized for them. But in all of this, their feet are planted firmly in midair. There is no confidence, no actual hope, no joy in contemplating eternity. Just a dark, clouded, foreboding wish for the best. In the depth of the songs that we've sung today of the hope in Christ and eternity. This is a hope our world doesn't have, and it's a hope we need to proclaim. How radically different our lives should look when we know on the authority of the God who cannot lie that eternal joy is ours in the presence of Christ forever. It is foolishness to sacrifice for Christ if there's no resurrection of the dead. Take it easy on your body. You're not really getting anything done anyway. And whatever was going on with baptism, that's absurd as well if there's no future. These are logical absurdities. He moves now then to moral necessities since there is a resurrection of the dead. That first moral necessity is to choose godly companions. This is one of the implications of the coming resurrection, that we should be concerned about who influences our lives. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. It seems like a shot out of a cannon. Like, what's the connection there? But this counsel seems, though, coming out of nowhere, I think that Paul is saying, stop finding friendship with people who are denying the resurrection of the body. You are not helping yourself here by listening to your culture, by trying to calibrate your Christian faith to what this culture wants to hear. 
If you welcome the influence of people who do not live in the light of eternity, do not live for the day they enter Christ's presence, they will drag you down spiritually. Now he's not talking here about evangelistic endeavor, but he's talking about those that you choose to commune with. And the question then for all of us is, am I finding camaraderie with people whose only concern is this life? That's the only thing they think about, is just the here and the now. If that's who I'm seeking to commune with, that's where I'm really finding friendship and close connections, I need to know that's going to pull me down. Do you relate to people who love Christ and hold life loosely with a focus on living for the only thing worth living for, our eternal presence with Christ? For some of the Corinthians, this meant cooling or probably ending relationships with people whose view of the body encouraged sinful behavior. This is one of the great joys, is it not, of our life together as a church in a world fixated on the here and now, mesmerized by what we consume, what makes us feel good, by selfish pride. We live together as a family of God in the spirit of the Apostle Paul where we know what it means to say to live as Christ and to die as gain. In the hope of our Savior's promise, in my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am now, you will be eternally. To live in a life calibrated to those future realities and promises changes how we relate to everyone and how we live our lives. And that leads naturally to the next point, which is wake up spiritually. Moral necessities, if there is a resurrection of the dead, choose godly companions who see the future, who can help us stay centered there. And wake up spiritually. Verse 34 He says, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. I think he's speaking here again figuratively of spiritual drunkenness, although if the shoe fits, literally, getting sober would certainly be a good first step. But he rebukes the Corinthians here, I think not for actual drunkenness as much as for spiritual lethargy. Wake up. Do not go on sinning. A drunk grows increasingly unaware of the surroundings. A drunk grows increasingly unaware of inappropriate behavior. Their actions, which embarrass others, cause no embarrassment to them the more drunk they are. And so spiritually speaking, using that image, Paul says, wake up. Calibrate your life to Christ and your future accounting before his throne. Living the way that you are living, denying the bodily resurrection, it is as if you are drunk. You're not thinking clearly. You're not understanding how inappropriately you are living. You're not understanding how you're ruining relationships. Wake up. 
And positively, that means no God. Verse 34, continuing, for some have no knowledge of God. I think he's going back there to that companion idea. And I say this to your shame. This concept, this again, connecting with cleaning up their friendships, but the fundamental problem with the bad influences in their lives was that they were finding fellowship with people who were dull to God's truth. They thought they were very wise as they were calibrating their Christian faith to what the world was anticipating. They thought they were really smart people. Paul's saying that there's just thorough ignorance here. Wake up and know God. Perhaps some of them were those who had indeed, verse 2, believed in vain. So it's, 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 there's a challenge here, and broken down this way, we have perhaps decrypted the passage to some degree. Here's what, as strange as it hits us out of the gate, it should be clear that this is what Paul's saying in summary. To be physically baptized for people who will have no eternal existence is irrational. To suffer for Christ in spreading the gospel is also irrational if there's no resurrection of the dead. If we have no future, why do that? Why suffer? If there is no resurrection, we are without hope in this world and may as well live for mere pleasure. But we will indeed, number four, rise again. So we should resist the negative influence of anyone who is blind to that future hope. Again, winning to Christ, relating to evangelistically, yes, but permitting that here orientation to influence us, no. Number five, there is a direct connection between our belief in eternal life and our fight against sin. And number six, let us stay then, let us, so let us stay awake, spiritually speaking, with a keen focus on eternity and a zeal to know God. I think this is the exhortation that we gain from this passage, as strange as it is and how it hits us, but this is the simple point. And it is of primary importance then, in all of this, for us to take from this passage the hard connection that Paul draws between godly living and faith in future resurrection. Believer, you will rise again. You will stand in the presence of Christ. And to know that, to contemplate that, to live my life oriented to that future changes how I live. This is the crucial point. The faith that my best days are always ahead of me, that I will give an account of my life before Christ, that my body will be resurrected and I will spend eternity with Jesus, that shapes the way I think about life. With our sights set on the resurrection, we will live with an otherworldly sense of moral responsibility. We will know it's not what I can get by with. It's not what I can hide. There is an all-seeing God, and I will give account. This knowledge will lead us to live in earnest pursuit of Christ's commendation. We will live caring less 
about what people think of us and more about what God thinks of us, knowing that what people think about us is often skewed, but God sees with perfect vision exactly who we are. That's convicting, and that's a source of great hope. We will be willing to suffer for Christ in light of the resurrection, willing to give liberally to the cause of Christ, knowing that nothing that we do in Christ's name is ever in vain or is ever forgotten by the Lord. Lose sight of the resurrection of your body and your future glory in Christ's presence. Become fixated on the possessions and obsessions of this earth and you will inevitably welcome sinful beliefs and sinful habits into your life. But if we will calibrate our lives to our resurrected future, that will calibrate our lives to righteous living. That will make us not less useful in this world, but more useful. To quote again C.S. Lewis, because we love something else more than this world, we love even this world better than those who know no other. May God render it so in our lives for his glory, for our eternal joy in Christ, transformed today by what I see in the future. If that future is for you a source of fear, confusion, Christ is the answer, and Christ is the only answer. But where one comes to be washed clean by the Spirit of God through trust in Christ's death and resurrection, there is input in the place of that fear, that confusion, that emptiness, a source of great, solid, eternal hope. And that changes how we live. Is it changing how you live? Does an eternal perspective clearly steer the way that you see the suffering, the difficulty, the hardships, and the joys of life? By God's grace, may he work that in us. Lord, do so, we pray, by your mercy to us in Christ. Help us to see the future by faith. We don't know what it looks like. We can't even hardly begin to imagine the wonder of it. But Lord, I pray that you would, through the proclamation of the word today, grow faith. That there would be a concentration and a focus in our lives upon the future that you have promised in Christ. Teach us the implications of his resurrection and victory over death. Teach us, Lord, how to live with eyes set on eternity. And may that transform the way that we live our lives here with usefulness. A usefulness that is not tied to this life alone but a usefulness that is willing to suffer, to let go, to give, to invest, 
to say no to the flesh because of what we see in eternity. And we pray again, Father, for any who know not this joy and hope that you would birth it in their soul today as they reach out and claim the work of Christ for themselves by your grace and according to your will. Through Christ we pray. Amen.